0: All right, well, good morning, Doxa Church. Guys, I wanna invite you to, to grab your Bible or your Mark journal, find your way to the Gospel of Mark chapter two, okay? If you are, in fact, new to, to Doxa, we haven't had a chance to meet you yet. My name is Rob, I'm one of the pastors here. It's, it's great to have you part of the, the Doxa family um, this morning. But as you join us this morning, we are in the midst of a study uh, through the Gospel of Mark, where we're really just kind of investigating the man who is God, and again, if you're newer to DOXA trying to feel out, what is this church about? Guys, we're a pretty simple church. Like as we gather like this every single week, we just kind of go through books in the Bible and we kind of approach it kind of chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because really what we believe is that this is a book that God wrote. That this is not just like a historical book or a spiritual book, but this is like a book that is filled with the very words of God. They're not just words from people throughout history that are to encourage us and push us forward, but really they're, they're words from God to help us to understand who He is, who we are, and to understand the world that we live in. And as we go through it, all right, we, we simply just come eager and expectant. Trusting that God is in fact going to speak to us every time that we open it up. And by his presence and power through his Holy Spirit, we seek to respond to him, thereby becoming the men and women that he has created us to be. And so if you are newer and you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you the gift of a Bible today. You can stop at the info corner on your way out at the end of the coffee bar, grab one for yourself, a couple for your family. It'd be just a joy for us to give you the gift of of God's word this morning. But guys, as we get into chapter two today, okay, I want to set it up like this. Last weekend, I was in Ohio. I was speaking at like a, a youth conference and then stopped into one of our newest uh, church plants of our, of our network um, in Columbus. And it was tiring, it was exhausting, but it was really awesome. I got to see like a lot of young people come to Jesus. I got to encourage like a young church planter and a young uh, church planting team and just kind of see all of the things that God is doing outside of Madison. So just a really awesome trip. But on my way home last Sunday, I was sitting in the airport, I'm having a sandwich, and this woman sits by next to me and just pulls up to the bar to grab a bite to eat, and she said hi, we did the chit-chat thing, and kind of awkward, whatever, but I'm talking to her, I'm like, learn that she's a professor, she's traveling to see um, her grandchildren, and then she sees my Bible sitting out on the bar, and she just was like, oh, are you like very religious? Now, I don't love that question, Okay. And so I was just like, well, I don't know if I would consider myself like very religious, but I, I do love and follow Jesus. And then she kind of like lit up a little bit and said, okay, so you're, you're a Christian. My daughter just became a Christian and she will not stop bothering me about it. She keeps telling me like I need Jesus and all this stuff. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, that's great, man. Are you, are you a Christian? And, and she's just like, no, but I know a lot about it. I've read the Bible, I've read the Quran, I've read all of these different things. I know a lot about it. And she looked at me and she's like, here's what I've been, I've been thinking about. And she said, here's my question. And she looked at me and she says, what do you think is the biggest benefit that Christianity has to offer the world? And I, and I thought, you know, I don't know where she's coming from. Like, does she wanna argue? I don't know if I have enough gas in the tank at this point. Like, I'm gonna have to order another gin and tonic or something like this. Or maybe she's like genuinely curious. And so I just did, I asked her, I'm like, that is a great question. Like, what do you think? You know, and if you've been in a connection group with me, you know that that's one of my favorite questions. What do you think, right? And it's not because I came up with that, but I remember Jesus doing this a lot. And so I just put it back on her. And she just said, well, there's probably a lot. And then she just started listing off a number of, of different things. And she said, I think Christianity is, is really just provides like a good ethic that if people would just live by this moral standard, it would make the world a better place. And then she said, it also provides like a, a love for people that really kind of helps people in need and really caring for downtrodden people. And she said, even for my daughter, you know, I've seen like it's given her like a peace and a joy and a purpose in her life. She, she really seems happier. And then she looked at me and she said, but what about you? What do you think is like the greatest benefit? And we talked for a little while And I told her that, I mean, I I do believe that while it's true that the Bible, you know, gives us kind of a moral standard that if followed, I think it will actually make the world a better place. And while it's true that I think Christians are marked with love and happiness and peace, and while it's true that a Christian finds a high calling in loving and helping and serving and giving to people and find amazing fulfillment in life, while all of that's true, none of those are the greatest benefit of Christianity. That those things are actually like byproducts of the greatest benefit. That there is one great benefit that the Christian gospel offers that transcends all other benefits and really just leads to all other benefits. And this benefit actually corresponds with mankind's greatest need. And what I did is I just grabbed my Bible and I opened up to Mark chapter two and I gave her what I think is the greatest benefit of Christianity. And this is what we're gonna discover today. So Mark chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word of God to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could no longer get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Guys, if you've grown up in the church, you know the Bible, this is likely like a very familiar story to you. And what I want to do as we approach this today, as I want you to see this, uh, I've been hoping that you would just see this with fresh eyes today. Because if you just think about this historical account, guys, it's actually amazing. I mean, just try and picture this scene. All right, Jesus, to this point, we've been going through the first couple chapters. He's, he's going around. He just started his public ministry in Mark chapter 1. He's preaching the word. He's teaching the word of God to them. He's healing people of their illnesses and diseases. He's also casting out demons. And as he's doing all these miraculous things, like there are just crowds of people that were coming to see him. He gets away for a little bit, and then he eventually returns to a place called Capernaum. And Capernaum is just basically the home base for Jesus' Galilean ministry. And as he gets there, all right, people are, it's just kind of probably just normal and chill, but then all of a sudden reports start to go out and people start to learn that he's there and then crowds just come again and again and again. They cram into this house that he was st- staying at. And so this house is just overflowing with people. They're everywhere. They're pouring out the door and inside, all right, just, re- just picture this in your head, crazy amount of people, but inside Jesus is just teaching a bunch of different types of people including, if you look back, there were a group there called the Scribes, who were just very religious people. The Scribes were kind of like the Jewish theologians in these days that would actually train the Pharisees. So very religious people, the top Jewish theologians. And they came, as they're listening to Jesus, they came like very skeptical. But in the midst of of Jesus' teaching, four men show up with their paralyzed friend on a mat. And so they're walking into the house, they see the door, they're like, okay, we, we're not gonna get through there, excuse me, they're doing that thing. People kind of look back, they make eye contact with the paralyzed guy on the mat, they look, make eye contact with the four friends, and then they just turn around like they didn't even see him, okay? And so they're like, okay, we're not gonna get in to see Jesus, and I wish I could have like, been there to hear this conversation that landed them on the roof, but however it went down, guys, these, these people were just, these guys were just convinced that they needed to get their friend in front of Jesus, and so they did something crazy. They climb up on the roof, and back then, you gotta understand, like a roof was typically lower, all right, and it was it was basically uh, a place where you could lay and sit, it was kind of like cross-hatched with sticks and branches that was then packed with grass and clay and mud, so it was a very solid place, but they crawl up onto this roof, and again, just think about it, okay? Just imagine like you're in here and then all of a sudden like you hear like footsteps on the roof, right? And then it sounds a weird sound. It sounds like someone's digging a hole through the roof, right? I know some of you, you get really distracted when someone else's phones rings in here or drop their big metal Yeti cup or like a baby cries or something like that. This is a whole new level of distraction. Like the roof is coming down on these people's head. The owner of the house is probably just like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you know what I mean? Come on. And you're dodging dirt, Jesus is even getting mud on him from the the roof caving in, and everybody's just kind of looking around like, what is happening? And all of a sudden, some light peeks through, and this hole just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and finally, it gets massive, and it just pauses, and everybody's just kind of waiting to see what happens next. And then at that moment, they're all looking up there, and then this mat starts to descend, right? It's probably got like rope tied to the corners and it's like the first century Cirque de Soleil, right? It's just like this guy just starts coming down from the ceiling and everybody's just like, what is going on? And he lands right in front of Jesus. And if you notice, Mark doesn't record that anybody is saying anything at this point. And I imagine Jesus kind of looking down at this guy and then looking up and just, I'm trying to picture like what these guys were doing up there Right? What did they look like? Like, were they nervous? Like, were they like, Jesus, do it? (laughs) what, What were they doing? Whatever. We don't know what they were doing with their face, but whatever Jesus saw on their face, it was the face of faith. And this changed everything. And Jesus looks at this paralyzed guy and he says something very strange. Son, your sins are forgiven. And what Jesus said is is very odd because this man didn't even ask for that. And while we don't know all the details here, we do know that in this day it was common belief that physical suffering was attributable to like personal sin. And so we don't know if this man's paralysis was because of personal sin in his life or if he was just born with it or something happened. All we know is that Jesus makes this announcement and it shocks everyone that this man has sinned and Jesus has authority to forgive him, which leads the scribes to think in their hearts, man this is blasphemy and blasphemy deserves death so that's what this teacher deserves and blasphemy is just really just speaking irreverently or sacrilegiously about god but these scribes in this moment understood that jesus was declaring himself and claiming to be god and so jesus asked them like what's easier to forgive sin or to heal paralysis and he just pauses And he says, I'm going to show you that I have authority to forgive sin. And he looks at this paralytic and says, Rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And again, guys, we can read past this, but just think of that moment. This guy just gets up, everyone's just amazed, and he just walks out. And I can imagine, like, the friends that are up there doing whatever they're doing, they're running out, they meet them in the street, they give them a chest bump, and they become like the first century woo girls that are just running down the street. Like, oh my gosh, right? It's just a crazy scene. And then, all of a sudden, the crowd speaks. And if you look back, they finally, after seeing all of this, they say, we've never seen anything like this. So this is just an awesome story. All right, but what we have to ask is what does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about ourselves? And what does this teach us about our world that we live in? And to answer that, here's what I wanna do. I wanna consider this account through five lenses. All right, we're gonna consider the one central theme, the two urgent needs, three characteristics about Jesus, four great friends, in five exhortations, okay? Now, some of you, you're getting overwhelmed, you're seeing this, you're like, this is a 15-point sermon. Guys, buckle up, I'm hearing my homiletic teacher in the back of my head being like, that's not a good idea, bro. We're gonna give it the old college try, okay? So, chug your coffee, pinch yourself. We're gonna go through this one by one, but the first is one central theme. And this central theme really just revolves around this question. Who is Jesus? Look back to verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, guys, this is a massive statement, okay? I mean, if you have studied world religions, no other religious leader says this. Muhammad, Krishna, Buddha, they don't say this. They don't say your sins are forgiven. They say we've uncovered like a secret. We've uncovered like a process in a path by which you can go through certain sufferings and certain routines and potential reincarnations to pay off God. And if you do it well enough and long enough that maybe at the end of your life and maybe God will forgive you. But you have to earn it. It's this big, huge process. Jesus here just says, forgiven. I can just forgive. Now look at verse six. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And here's the thing for us to know. Guys, when we sin, we sin against people and we sin against God, so we gotta apologize to people and we gotta apologize to God. This is what repentance is. And Jesus says, I'm gonna forgive this guy. And the scribes are, are looking at this and they're just like, this is blasphemy. You're saying that you're God. And Jesus is kind of like, I know, this is like kind of my, my thing, all right? I'm just gonna keep saying this over and over again. I'm God. And I, and I know that some of you, you've, you've grown up and especially in maybe like a more academic pl- place like Madison, you have heard people say that Jesus never said that he was God. I need you just to understand that this is not true that Jesus repeatedly, emphatically, and publicly declared himself to be God, and he did it in a lot of different ways, and this is one of them. I mean, just consider this, guys. If you think about in Psalm 51.4, it says that against you only, Lord, have I sinned. And so the truth here is all of us sin against God, and so who has to forgive us? God. And here Jesus says, I'll forgive you. That this man has not sinned against Jesus, but he sinned against God and Jesus says, I forgive you because I am God. And then he goes on and look at verse 10. He says, but that you may know the son of man, and I want you to circle son of man in your Bible. The son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Doctor, I want you to see this, that title, son of man. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. And if you were around several months ago as we went through our study through the book of Daniel, this should just take you back because this was in the book of Daniel. We, we saw this, but this is so significant. See, in the Old Testament, all right, the term son of man is used in several different ways. For example, in, in Psalm 144.3, it simply means human being. However, if you remember back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it refers to one who will come to establish God's kingdom and have authority over everything, And when Jesus uses this title, guys, he does so in both connotations. That as God incarnate, he is human. He's a human being who identifies with sinful humanity and he serves and he suffers on our behalf. But as God, he is the coming Lord of glory. And so what we have here in Mark chapter two in the first 12 verses is just a majestic claim to deity. Jesus is saying, and make no mistake about it, I'm God become a man. And throughout the Gospels, he uses that term, son of man, some 83 times. It's his favorite identity title to show us who he actually is. And I'll tell you that it's statements like that that led the Jewish leaders to have Jesus arrested because they understood that Jesus was declaring himself to be God. And this was ultimately why he was killed because they didn't believe it was true. And for them it was blasphemy. And so I need you to know to that question Who is Jesus? Jesus is truly, clearly, emphatically God. Jesus, Jesus Christ is our great Lord God and King. This is the one central theme here in Mark 2. Jesus is God. And the scribes here are right. right? That if Jesus is not God, this is blasphemy. And no one should listen to him. But if he is God, it's actually the scribes that are committing blasphemy. And so we either come to Jesus as God and listen to everything that he says in this book, or we just kind of throw it all away, and this makes no sense at all. These scribes understood it rightly, but they missed it. They missed the point that Jesus is actually God. And I'm, I'm so excited for Easter to come up. I can't believe it's Easter almost already, and it's snowing outside. But we're going to look at the resurrection and these historical realities that show how Jesus vindicated and validated all of his claims to be God. It's going to be an awesome time, but Jesus is God. And here's the question I have to ask you guys. Is he your God? He is, in fact, God, but is he your God? And that question has eternity hanging on it, which makes it the most important question you will ever answer. And so we see the one central theme in this account, the primacy and the deity of Jesus, which leads to the two urgent needs, okay? And we see these two urgent needs in the man who was paralyzed. And the first thing that we notice from this is that obviously this man had a very evident physical need, that he was paralyzed. And we don't know the extent of his paralysis and how much he moved and how much he couldn't, but obviously he was in bad shape because he's on a mat, he can't take care of himself. And so he's got this really very real physical need. But the second urgent need, if you look back from this account, which is ultimately his ultimate need, was this man's spiritual need. And again, said this is so important. Please just hear me on this. More important than this man's physical paralysis was his spiritual paralysis. This man was a sinner in need of a savior. And because that is true, his ultimate need was not him, it was not like healing from God, but it was holiness before God. That's what he needed most. He didn't need healing from God, he needed holiness before God. And this man, just as he could not achieve healing on his own, he also was incapable of achieving holiness on his own. And I need you to understand that this is the ultimate need in all of our lives. It's never the physical. It's not just like our marriage. It's not just our relationships and our finances and our jobs, but it ultimately is a spiritual need. And I'm hoping, I've been praying that somebody in here, this would break the cycle of your life where you are trying to achieve holiness before God by being certain ways. That I have to keep going to church. I have to get baptized. I better go to that meeting. There's a book study that's happening. I better start giving. I better do all this stuff. It's none of that stuff is going to produce holiness in you. You might get some pats on the back from people around you, but it is only Jesus that makes you holy before God. We cannot get caught up into the church game, into religion. It's always Jesus. And Jesus sees this in this guy. Jesus knows something about this man that he didn't know about himself. And I want you to know that Jesus knows something about you this morning that you may not know about yourself. And when he says to this man, your sins are forgiven... He's saying to him, hey, I understand your problems. I actually see your suffering, but just please realize that the main problem in a person's life is never their suffering, it's always their sin. And we talk about this all the time, but we all, all of humanity, with all the differences that we have, the one thing that we have in common is that we're all sinful by nature and choice. I mean, this is why we don't have to have like classes in schools, right, where we teach young kids how to lie and hit each other and hate people, right? They just kind of figure it out on their own, right? We live in a broken world. We do things that we shouldn't do. We don't do things that we should do. This is, this is sin, and sin separates us from God. I want you to listen to the words of a man named Timothy Keller as he talks about this passage. He says it like this, and I quote, If you find Jesus' response to the paralytic offensive, please at least consider this. If someone says to you the main problem in your life is not what's happened to you and not what people have done to you, but your main problem is the way you've responded to that. Ironically, that's empowering. Why? Because you can't do very much about what has happened to you or about what other people are doing, but you can do something about yourself. When the Bible talks about sin, it's not just referring to bad things we do, It's not just lying or lust or whatever the case may be. It is ignoring God in the world that he has made. It's rebelling against him by living without reference to him. It's saying, I will decide exactly how I live my life. And Jesus says, that is our main problem. Because we have all sinned, we all fall short, and on our own, it separates us from God. And somebody here this morning, you need to hear this. This is the gospel. And I just need you, I beg you just to listen just for a second, that unmediated, undealt with sin, if it continues through this life into the next life, into eternal life, this is what leads to eternal separation, which is just the terrible reality of hell. And you might have perfect health, you might have great finances, you might have everything that this world says that it offers, but without Jesus, I need you to understand, you actually don't have anything that will last eternally. And this leads to three amazing characteristics of Jesus. All right, look back to verse six. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? All right, the first characteristic we see about Jesus here is that Jesus knows our hearts. He knows our hearts and he sees our hearts. If you notice, these scribes, as they're watching this, they're listening to Jesus, they don't even say anything. They don't speak out loud, but Jesus perceived their hearts. He perceived their thoughts and he saw their unbelief and he saw their skepticism and their sin and he speaks to it without them even bringing it up. And I need you to know, guys, that Jesus sees our hearts just like that. He sees all of our sin. Some of us in this room right now are really good at hiding. You're really good at hiding. And people are all around you, and there's some people that are really close to you, and they don't see what's going on under the surface of your heart. And I want you to know that while you can hide from people, we can't hide from God. He sees it. He sees it all. The thoughts, the heart. And I, and I mention this because when we try and hide our sin or we stuff it way deep down into the crevices of our life, into the darkness where we just think no one will see this, where we start to like, not even acknowledge that it exists, we are tempted to think like, it's not even there because I pushed it so far down Maybe it's not a big deal. I love you enough to tell you that the truth of Hebrews 4 and Jesus' words in Matthew 12 where it says that we will all stand before God one day and give an account for everything that we've done. Every single one of us will do that. And I want you to know, guys, if you're standing there alone, giving an account on that day, it's gonna be the worst day of your life because it will just be you and judgment. But with Jesus, the judgment that comes for our sin will not come to us because he takes it. And that will be the best day of our lives as we enter into eternity in the family of God, not condemned, but redeemed. It's Jesus, guys. We all need him. And so Jesus, he knows our hearts and he sees our sin, but secondarily, If we look at verse 11, we see that Jesus has power to heal our ailments. Verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Doxa, I need you to know that God is able and I don't know if you're anything like me, but so many times I can read a passage like this and see God do miraculous things and healings happen and miracles happen, and I could just be like, man, that is so amazing that Jesus actually did that. But what we need to understand, and what I've been praying that God would help me understand, is that Jesus has not changed. Amen? He still does miracles. He's still moving and active and powerful. He's still able to help us And do we see this every day? No. But have I seen it? Absolutely. God still does the miraculous. I've seen and been part of sick people being healed. I've seen tormented people be delivered. I've seen lives changed. I've seen addictions broken. I've seen marriages saved. God is able. He is able to meet you and to change your story and to change your situation. I believe this. Does anybody believe that? Because this is who our God is. And this is not a prosperity gospel thing, a name it and claim it thing. This is just the truth of what we see in the scriptures. That God is alive and well through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit and he can make a way. We don't just sing that song, Waymaker, because it was catchy and on the top 10 chart. We sing it because it's actually true. He's able. And so for me, when I'm in those places, I pray with faith, knowing that God can do it. And even if he doesn't, I trust him and I worship him because I know that he is good and I know that he's got a better plan for my life than I do. Do you remember back to Daniel, those, those three young men that were being thrown into the furnace? This is our God. He is able and we just say, God, I trust you. I'm gonna ask you for it. But even if you don't do it, I'll still love you and I'll still follow you. And then finally, If we look back to verse five, we actually discover the greatest thing about Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, and I want you to circle this in your Bible like five times, your sins are forgiven. The third characteristic that we see here is that Jesus forgives sin. And guys, this is what I told that woman at the airport last weekend. Christianity's greatest benefit to the world, Jesus forgives sin. And I know that, guys, I know some of you walked in here today and you see yourself as kind of like really unclean and you see yourself as dirty like that leper last week that we looked at in Mark chapter one. And you see yourself as just all nasty right now. I need you to understand that Jesus is reaching out to you just like he did to that leper, and he's saying, you're clean. In me, you are clean. I took your sin. I went to the cross. I suffered and died in your place for your sin, and I gave you my righteousness. You're clean. And I need you to understand that through Jesus, you have a new identity that isn't defined by what you've done, but what Jesus has done for you. And Jesus would look at you, and he would say, stop saying, I'm unclean. Stop saying I'm unworthy. Stop saying I'm filthy and I'm defiled. You're clean. Just go home and take a shower, right? I mean, seriously, every time you take a shower, just sit there and think, this is what Jesus does for me. He makes me clean. Every time you put on a white shirt, I want you to see yourself as clean, spotless, blameless, because this is what Jesus does. And next time you sin, which you will, or you get sinned against and you feel filthy and dirty and defiled and unworthy, go back to Jesus and he will touch you again and he will make you clean, he will declare to you that you are clean. I mean, how great is that? No one's excited, okay, wow, it's, uh, okay. This is great, this is the gospel. And I also know, guys, that there's some of you that walked in here and you don't feel that dirty and your life looks pretty much all together. I want you to know that you might not be filthy, but you're still guilty. You need to understand that. You might look great from the outside, but you are still a sinner in need of a savior. And you know what? Jesus forgives. He just does. And he doesn't give you like a long laundry list to do. He just comes and he lives for you, he dies for you, and he raises for you, and he declares when you come to him, forgiven. Guys, I'll never get over this. I pray that I'll never get over this. I mean, if I could just remember that every single day, right? I mean how hard are our days and our weeks comparatively to the world not that bad but you know what in our cushy little section like th- life can be hard but if i would just wake up in the morning and realize oh my gosh i am forgiven i am redeemed i have heaven in front of me guys that would be a little perspective a little bit of joy a little bit of motivation to take another step and make another day because i know there is coming a day that god is going to come back and wipe away every tear from my eyes i'm forgiven I mean, how awesome is this? This is the gospel. And this leads us to the four great friends. And when we look at these guys, there's several characteristics to consider. All right? if you just look back as I'm explaining this and just read what they did, for one thing, they were deeply concerned about their friend and they wanted to see him helped. Jesus looked at them, It says that they had faith to believe that Jesus could and would meet his needs. I love these guys because they didn't just simply pray about it. They put some feet to their prayers and they didn't just give up easily. They could have like just showed up at that door and been like, okay, Jesus is too busy today. Let's just find, we'll come back a different day. But they persisted and they just went. And Jesus, he saw their faith. He saw their effort and he rewarded it. So these men, these friends are single-minded. Their mission is to get their friend to Jesus, no matter what it takes, because they knew that Jesus alone could answer their friend's problems. They had great faith and Jesus saw it and accepted it and acted on it because of it. But here's my question, what are you willing to do to bring your friend to Jesus? These guys so badly wanted their friend to get to Jesus that they go out of their way. They got a cot, they carried him, they climb up on the roof, they dismantle it. They dig a hole. They lower him down. These guys, they just wanted to get their friend to Jesus. And you know, when you look at those like, big like Billy Graham crusades and stuff like that, the statistics show that 75% of the people who come to Jesus in faith at those things were invited by a Christian friend. People who actually went out of their way to love them and to get them to Jesus. Guys, do you have that perspective? I mean, have you said like, hey, come over to my house Have you said like, hey, here's a Bible. Hey, here's a book. Hey, come over, we're having this thing. Hey, come with church with me this weekend. What are we willing to do to get people in front of Jesus? I love these friends. They had great faith and they loved this guy enough that said, Jesus can help you. Are we willing to do that? Doc said, this is what God, I believe, is asking us all to do. People need Jesus. And it's our great privilege to take people to encounter and experience Jesus, even if there's obstacles, and there will be obstacles. But will we be resilient and creative, like these four friends, to get around the obstacle and find a way to get people to Jesus? So we've looked at the one central theme, the two urgent needs, the three characteristics of Jesus, four great friends, and let me just end with five exhortations five ways that this passage urges us to walk out of this room today. Number one, guys, we need to give the gospel to a needy world. We need to give the gospel to a spiritually needy world. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to announce good news. The gospel is good news. And so we go with the gospel and everyone around us, we realize that we haven't locked eyes with someone that doesn't mean a whole lot to God. And so we love them and we serve them and we give them the gospel, the good news that Jesus loves you. He died for you, He made a way for you to escape the reality of your sin. Number two, we show Jesus' love in a world of physical needs. And so, yes, we work primarily to keep people from eternal suffering, but let's also work diligently to care for people in the midst of their earthly struggles. Let's be gospel friends like these four friends that love people, that serve people, that give to people, that help people, that go out of their way to actually show the love of God by meeting people's physical needs. And as we do that, that love will then be a pointer to Jesus. Why do you do that? Because God loves you and I love you. Number three, let's contribute to gospel mission. These four friends, they bring their friend to Jesus. These friends, they gave of themselves so that their friend could meet Jesus. And as a church, guys, ministry moves forward by God's people contributing. That we serve, we give, we go. And if you're new to Doxa, don't even listen to me say this. But for those of you who have been coming to Doxa for a while and you have your picked out seat and all of that stuff, right? I want you to hear this. This is the way the church moves forward. It's the Spirit of God empowering God's people to live like Jesus, to give like Jesus, to contribute. This is the way the gospel ministry goes forward. And I would believe that, guys, if you're in here and this is like your church family and you're not like serving and you're not like giving, I love that you're here, but I would just beg you to get off the bench. Stop enjoying the show and get your hands dirty. Like Madison needs you. The family of Doxa needs you. You are gifted in a specific way. And God's call is not for you to be a spectator, but to be an investor, to love and to serve. Number four, guys, get out of the crowd and get on the roof. Some of you, you, I know that you're here. And again, I love you that you're here, but you're, you're not with Jesus. You're in the church, but you're not in Christ. And I want you to know that the church cannot do anything about your sin problem. And if you just sit in that crowd just like Jesus was there with that crowd, do you notice like he was teaching them, he said your sins are forgiven and then all the crowd did was they're like, wow, that was amazing. It seems like they should have just ran to Jesus and been like, I'm next. Can you do that to me? If you're in the crowd, get up on the roof which is the place of faith and Jesus will see you and he will heal you. And then number five, Never forget the gift of forgiven sin. Never forget the great gift that Jesus has forgiven your sin. And let that just produce some joy in you. And then you can just say, thank you, Jesus. I love you. Guys, here's the big idea. Jesus is God and Jesus forgives sin. And he's who we need above everything else. Let me pray. Father, I I love you. Jesus, I think of the truth in Romans 5, 8, that while I was running away from you, while I was still in my sin, that you came and you lived for me and you died for me. And God, I just pray that for the Christians in this room, that as we are sitting here, Holy Spirit, would you remind us of the truth of the gospel? Would you give us a fresh revelation of your love for us that you, Jesus, forgave us our sin? Help us to see how great that is and just to respond with living lives of worship. And for those people that you have brought here that you see, that you love, that you care for, that have not come to Jesus, would you just, Holy Spirit, allow them to understand that you love them and that, Jesus, you died for them so that they could have forgiveness of sin and would they just take a step to follow you? God, you're worthy of it all. And as a church, Jesus, we just say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you.